I am going to invite you to Romans chapter 11 this morning is where we're at. Romans chapter 11. And so we've worked through this section of scripture in the, in the book of Romans. Uh, chapter 9, 10, 11 are sort of a cohesive unit in the, in the book of Romans. So if you kind of thought of Romans in sections, the first eight chapters deals with our relationship to God. Paul lays out for us what really what the gospel is and how our life is transformed in Jesus and the position it gives us in him. And it culminates in, in chapter 8 in describing our identity in Christ. It's a, a beautiful work that Paul has put together. Some say that's the greatest work in antiquity that anyone could ever read. And then chapter 9, 10, 11 is this unit that uh, the Jewish people are asking the question, well, what, what happens to us? Um, and then 12 and on is the application of, of the gospel. And so in chapter 9 to 11 is where we are together today. We're at the tail end of, of, of chapter 11, working through that. We're going to pick up in verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 11 today. But, but Paul is answering the question really preemptively as he's writing this letter. He's, he's assuming that the, the Jewish believers are going to have some question in their mind about Israel. Uh, where, does, where do we fit in all of this? And if you think in terms of 9, 10, 11 as, as the past, present, and future, chapter 9 being Israel in the past, chapter 10 being Israel in the present, chapter 11 being Israel in the future, uh, today that's what we're going to deal with is, is how the Lord wants to work through the people of Israel moving forward, and particularly knowing the Jewish people by and large have rejected the Lord. What is their future uh, hold, and, and what does God des desire for them um, now that they've rejected or fallen before uh, the Lord or fallen away from the Lord? What can we anticipate uh, for their lives, and where do they stand before God? Is there, is there a way to move forward, and if they do, how do they move forward from here? And, you know, as we look at this as a, from a particular people group, I think there's, there's also plenty of application for us as well because, well, we mess up too and we fall on a regular basis or, or sometimes as it relates to this chapter, it's dealing with a people group. Sometimes a, a people group might move away from the Lord and the question is, well, what, what about our people? Has God completely forsaken us? Or have we been abandoned? How do we even get back to where we were? How, can we even move forward in that position we're in, whether on a, on a, a in a personal spot or, or collectively? That's the, 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 the question they're asking in this chapter today. And so uh, very applicable to our lives and, and thinking through how we might recover from falling. And what does that mean for us? And point number one is where we start to, this morning uh, to answer the first part of this question, how do we recover or how do we succeed after falling? Point number one in your notes is this, understand God's heart. Um, what is it about the Lord that we need to learn in order to be able to move forward? Because uh, God's position will determine where our position can lie. Because if there's no hope in the Lord, then there's no hope for us. And so we need to know where God's heart is in all of this uh, for us to be able uh, to move forward in him. And so this is the question they ask in the very beginning of verse 11. They, they say, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And what Paul's actually applying here with Israel um, is not just simply falling as if they fall and can get up, but he, he, he's inferring forever. Are you saying, uh, I asked, did, did they stumble in order they might fall forever? Meaning, is, is that it for the Jewish people? And so God's just going to move on with the Gentiles and leave them with the dust, in the dust, God's, God's chosen people, the ones that he's, he's made his, his promises through that the Messiah would come and transform the world. Is that it now that the Messiah is here? Are, are, are they finished? And how, how do we move forward when we fall? Is God for Israel's failure forever? Are they done? And related to that, you could ask the question, is God for your failure? And when you fail, are you finished? 
I, I know sometimes as people, we, we can feel that way. When we, we mess up, we get in that, that place of uh, brokenness and, and shame and despair. And, and we don't really see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel in that moment. We just we, we look inside of ourselves and feel that sense of, uh, of darkness and like we let people down. And so they're asking this question here in the beginning. Did they stumble in order that they fall? And, and Paul answers this question the same as he's answered the, all the questions he's had up to this point. These half a dozen questions Paul's asked in Romans 9, 10, 11. And, and Paul says, by no means. By, by no means, but rather to understand the heart of God, then he gives us uh, some answers in response to this. And really in this, this next section of, uh, of this verse, he, he really gives us three responses to this. He says, rather through their trespass, so that's, that's part one, salvation has come to the Jews, part two, so as to make Israel jealous. And so what, what God is doing here in the beginning, he, he's acknowledging uh, that Israel has fallen. And I, I really appreciate this about this Lord, this, this place of transparency in talking about Israel. Let's, let's say where they're at, right? Let's just declare what it is through their trespass. Israel has certainly fallen. And, and with the Lord, we, we, we get that opportunity to be uh, honest with him and, and where we are as human beings because of who he is in his nature. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to sweep things under the rug. We don't have to act like we have it all together. We don't have to be perfect. God knows. That's why Jesus came. And God's acknowledging for the, for the Jewish people where, where they are and the rejection of him and turning away from him, which really is a fairly wild statement when you consider it in the context of Scripture. And the reason is, is because uh, the, the Old New Testament is written by Jewish people, right? By and large, it's Jewish people. Like this morning, we're studying the Jewish faith, and we're, we're, we're learning from, really, the, the Jewish languages, Hebrew, and then they spoke uh, Greek into the time of, of Christ. And uh, we're learning all about their culture and tradition, and yet, um, by and large, they've rejected the Messiah. But here, here we are today learning about the faith that they proclaimed that we have now owned as our faith because the Messiah has come to redeem and Gentiles have embraced this message. But God is open about their failure and he, he acknowledges it. But then the next part of this verse, he, he says to us as well, in this difficult moment, even though they've rejected it, God has moved it together for a greater good. That in, in our failures, it's important to remember that God is greater than our failures, and, and God can redeem anything. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and purposely mess up in life to, to show how great God can make things. That's not honoring to the Lord. But, but God certainly, within his, his ability and his sovereignty, can take what, what man might intend for bad or wrong, and, and God can bring a greater story of redemption out of it. And that's what he's saying about the Gentiles in this passage of Scripture. Salvation has now come to the Gentiles that through one people group, all people group have, have come to be blessed. And then he says this in, in the, the last part of this verse, as to make Israel jealous. Now, in most contexts, um, jealousy is not a good thing, right? The idea of, of coveting or envy or, or, or jealousy, we, we tend to, to couple those words together, but jealousy is, typically is not a good thing. But here in this passage, the Lord intends the idea of jealousy, provoking them to jealousy to, to be a good thing. Um, reality is, uh, we, we oftentimes as people, we learn best in our mistakes, 
I don't know about you, but sometimes, according to my mom, um, growing up, I, I tended to be one of her favorite in the, in the category of stubbornness. I don't know if maybe favorite's the right word, but I, I was, I was the, the head of the class out of all my siblings when it, comes to, when it came to stubbornness, right? Um, but but it was, it, it, for me, my education was um, making the stupid mistake and then learning from that, right? You couldn't just hear someone else say it. You had to go find it out for yourself, and, and, and that was me. But, but I think in this, in this verse, he's saying, really, that's, that's, that's a lot of us. Uh, we, we tend to be that way sometimes. And, and, and when we make those mistakes, they tend to be some of life's greatest lessons. And, and God, by bringing Israel to this place of jealousy, he's really putting his finger on where the problem is for them. Now, in most contexts, jealousy certainly is bad, but in a general sense, jealousy is when you believe um, someone else is in your place, All right? So, so in some contexts, jealousy, envy, coveting, it, it leads to destruction because your desire is to want what someone else has, and therefore you look at what someone else has as uh, you look at that person as an obstacle uh, to what you, you want to achieve or receive. And so in order to get there, you even get to the place in that jealousy that you want to take that person down in order to get what you, you desire because after all, you're the most important thing. And before you know it, you start treating people like a tool and the object as your place of worship, and so you crave those things, and it becomes destructive, right? You, you long for something as if it's yours, and, and honestly, it's not rightfully yours in most places. The jealousy, envy, coveting, destructive, um, unless it is rightfully supposed to be yours. Uh, and I think maybe the best example that we could think of in terms of a healthy jealousy would be in, maybe in the context of uh, of marriage or, or family, parents over your children, your concern and care for their well-being. If someone tries to step into their life and it's destructive, you could be jealous over that for their well-being, for their protection, because they belong to you. The Lord has given them to you. They, they are your responsibility as a, as a gift. And with that gift, obviously, is a responsibility comes along with that. And so there is this uh, desire within you to be jealous over what God has given you to protect and same thing for a marital relationship in terms of, of this passage. God, God describes our relationship to him in terms of a marital relationship. And so the Lord is jealous towards us with a godly jealousy because we're designed to belong to him. And, and in relationship to Israel, Israel's God's chosen people. And, and he wants Israel to be jealous of that relationship for which they were created in Christ. It belongs to them or created in the Lord. It belongs to them. It, 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 they belong to him. He, and, they, and he belongs to them. And so that, that relationship of, uh, of jealousy is, is significant because it is theirs to possess. And so the way to determine if jealousy is good or bad is if your desired outcome is for coveting benefit or for God's glory. Is it really to honor the Lord or is it just about making you the priority? And God is saying in this passage, what he wants to provoke Israel to is to, to recognize that 
They were created for relationship. That is where they belong. That's why God designed them and God desired to work through them. And so in this moment, he's provoking them to jealousy. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Listen to this. Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin in him. And so Paul's desire, godly desire, this this jealousy is about helping people connect to the Lord and know him because they were one created by him and two, Jesus came to redeem them. They belong to him. You as a creature are created as a worship being. The only place that that worship is intended to be connected to is in the Lord. Anything else will sell you short. As Paul Tripp says, it'll make you less than human. God made you to belong in that way. And so in that, in verse 12, God says his target here. His target is, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What God's heart is, is for every people group, all ethnicities in this world. Jesus came to pursue us all that we might find life in him. And, and God knows we fail. But, but in this passage, we start to see God's heart. And, and that becomes important for us because when we fall, if we know what God's heart is, it gives us a place not to, to run in guilt and shame, but rather to turn back to him and, and seek his face and find forgiveness and be reconciled and enjoy that relationship because it's the heart of God that even, even in these moments while Israel has rejected him, God continues to extend his hand to them and his desire is to bring them back in. Point number two is to find godly friends. To to find godly friends. Not only do we see God's heart here, but when we fall, it's also important to have a community to encourage you. And and, and let me be a little bit clear here when I say find godly friends. I I don't mean people that just wear the label Christian and just say I'm a Christian. I I genuinely mean people that that have a life-giving relationship with Jesus. People that when you think of, you know they walk with Christ, and so they want to not just wear the label of Christian, but they want to encourage you and speak truth into your life. And in this passage, that, that's the Apostle Paul for the Jewish people. Everyone, everyone needs someone like the Apostle Paul's heart towards the Jewish people. You need someone towards you in your life in that same way. And in verse 13, it says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Um, I know the, the thought goes on from there. Actually, verse 14 is not the beginning of a new thought, but it's a continuation of verse 13. But, but, but I want to acknowledge here that uh, the Apostle Paul, being, uh, being, a, being a Jew, rejected by his own people, he's still looking for where God's moving. And Paul's saying, look, I, I just, I just want to do what God has called me to in this world with, with the people that God has brought into his fold. Like, let's move forward in ministry and what God desires. And he's recognizing his position in the Lord. And all of us are given a, a position in God. And so Paul wants to move in that way. But then he adds on to that in verse 14. He says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And so Paul is saying the same heart as the Lord is he's not only wanting to do ministry and he's working among the Gentiles, but, but his heart continues to be for his own people. And, and he's moving forward with, with the desire that as, as he sees the success of the Gentiles in the gospel, his prayer and hope is that it would make his own people jealous again in, in order to drive them back to the Lord. 
that they would remember what they had in, in their relationship with God and, and want to move to that. And for me, verse 14 is, is an incredible testimony to the life of the Apostle Paul. When I talk about needing godly friends, verse 14 is that example as to why that matters. Because when you think about the Apostle Paul's life, the Apostle Paul had every excuse in the world to just be done with his own people. And when the Apostle Paul went on his missionary journeys and he planted churches, he would always start in the, the synagogues as long as there was a synagogue in, in the cities that he would go to. He would start with his own people, part of it because there was a, at least a biblical foundation there, so it's easy to start with the gospel when you have a, a biblical foundation, but also because his heart was for his people. And after they would reject him, he would then move on to other people. Some of them would embrace the message, but then he would move on to the other Gentiles. Over and over, Paul did this. Paul continuously went to prison because of his faith. Do you know why Paul was in prison? It's because of the Jewish people. They harassed him everywhere he went. But you know what the apostle Paul did? He never gave up on him. Paul never gave up on him. He had every excuse in the world to want to give up, to say, you know what, God, I've done enough. But he didn't. He always showed up. He always proclaimed Christ, and he always shared the love of God. Paul always did that. He never deterred from what God called him to do. Same is true for us, right? I mean, think in your life, who might you consider to be taboo as it relates to the gospel? Someone that just rubbed you too raw, right? Okay. Where do you think that the gospel shouldn't reach? And what, what political line do you think, well, if they came to know the Lord, I, I, don't, I don't think I could go that far, right? Like, rather than praise God, you're like, not anybody but them, Lord. LA Lakers, no thank you, right? Like, I could reach any other team, <laughs> but not, the, not that politician, not, not, not that part of Hollywood, not, the, not like somewhere. Like, where, where is your limitation? The Apostle Paul in this passage shows to us over and over just how much the grace of God has impacted his life by his willingness uh, to, to go to the very people that attacked him. He, he knows how God has transformed his life. He knows who he was apart from the Lord. And because he, he's rec recognizing his own brokenness, Paul is willing to just not give up on people. Uh, I know seasons might look a little different in relationships in your life because people aren't always easy to love. But the point is, is Paul's heart was always for them. And, and when we think about our own lives, the kind of Christians that we should surround ourselves with, knowing um, one day in your walk with Jesus, things may get hard. You need the kind of people around you that are going to fight for you. And so in this passage, we, we see it's, it's important to understand God's heart. And it's important to have godly friends. And, and Paul reminds us, sorry, let me come back here. Paul reminds us at the end of this, um, verse 13, he says, now I'm speaking, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, sorry, verse 15, let me move on. For if, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Um, if, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So, so verse 15, Paul is saying, I, I carry the same heart as the Lord here. As God's desire is, is really about the world, the reconciliation of the world. And, and, and he, his heart is certainly not against the Jewish people. 
God wants to reach all ethnic groups, all people groups. And so as the Jews have rejected him, Paul is, God has not stopped reaching out. Paul has not stopped reaching out because the gospel can redeem anybody at any moment. And how beautiful it would be all people groups coming to know the Lord and, and worshiping him. And, then, and so Paul then, he starts to give us an illustration of verse 16 uh, that will bring us to this last point and starting in verse 17. But he says some interesting things here. He starts talking about dough offered to first fruits and, and, and the lump of all of that. And then talking about a root that is holy. What in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about in this passage? Well, what he's starting to build for us is to understand what it means to be healthy in Christ. What it looks for our lives to be healthy in the Lord. And, and he refers to a couple of illustrations in the Old Testament. One um, comes from the book of Numbers chapter 11, really is the first time it's mentioned, this, this offering of the dough before the Lord, the idea of, of, of first fruits. And the, and the second comes from Jeremiah chapter 11, talking about this, this idea of a root. And, and these pictures are important because the demonstration of this really is a, a portrayal of whether or not you're healthy in the Lord. This idea of first fruits is a demonstration of whether or not your heart is healthy. The idea of a root is a demonstration of whether or not your heart is healthy. And what he means is this. In, in Israel's day, they were an agricultural society. Uh, when, when the harvest would begin, the very first part of that harvest, God called his people at the very beginning of the harvest to always take the first fruits, the first things they received from, uh, from all of their hard work for the year, and to give it to God. And it was a way of saying to the Lord, look, God, our heart is aligned with you, and we, we want to make sure that you get the first and the best of everything, not the scraps and the leftovers, but also it's saying to the Lord, and God, we're going to trust you in giving this to you. We're going to trust you to supply all that we need on the back end. We're giving to you first, recognizing, Lord, that you sustain us in all things, and we're expecting, Lord, that after this first fruit, that you're going to continue to provide for us. It's, it's a demonstration of a heart that's really given over to God. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying in this, this verse. He's starting to, in this moment now, helping us think through our own hearts as it relates to the Lord. He, he describes... Um, the first fruits of, of your life and also the idea of, of the root and the branches. Meaning if, if you want to be a healthy tree and you want to produce healthy fruit, you don't, you don't look to the, to the fruit to determine if the tree is going to be healthy. What you look at is you, you look at the root. The fruit is the, 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 the byproduct. The root determines whether or not the tree is ever going to be healthy and produce anything. And so you want to make, the, make sure the, the proper nutrients is, is being received in, in, in through the root so that the tree grows in a healthy way. And so the Apostle Paul is connecting the dots for us that way, that if, if your heart is given over to what God has created it to, then your life will naturally produce what God desires, which is completely opposite to what religion teaches you. Religion looks at the outward performance, and if you're failing, they just drive guilt upon you and tell you to do better. And so we try to fabricate these things in our life that give the appearance that we have it all together or that we're performing up to the expectation or the standard. Meanwhile, the relationship with God is never healthy because it never dealt with the root. It never got to the heart. What scripture actually teaches us is if you want a healthy Christian life, don't look to the fruit. Look to what lies within the heart and whether or not it's given over to the Lord. And so point number three in your notes is this. Examine your heart. Examine your heart. You know, you think about re recovering after falling. 
You ever mess up in your life or you think of a particular people group that's messed up? A few things we need, right? We, we need to know where God rests in that. It's important to know the character of God. We need godly people to encourage us on that journey that will fight for us when we struggle, that knows we're not, we're not going to leave this place and be perfect the rest of our lives. Um, but I would say most importantly is, is what you determine to do because it's not so, your spiritual life is not someone else's responsibility. And so examining your heart matters. And that's where the Apostle Paul then goes in verse 17. He uses this illustration of Israel, and he, he brings it back to, to us. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, really talking about Israel, they were connected to this root, they rejected this root, um, there was no life, they were broken off. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the other trees and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Let me stop there and read the next part in a minute. But you think about this illustration for a minute, what the Apostle Paul is saying, because I think what it produces in all of us is this position of humility. Um, whenever you farm trees, and I know this because I'm a tree farming expert, right? Um, I, I have enough sense to know this. You don't, you don't take a wild branch and graft it into a, a, a tree that bears fruit, right? Rather, you would take the, the wild stump or wild root and you would graft in the tree branch that's going to bear fruit. In this, in this illustration, it's the exact opposite. So, so the, way, the way it would work is if you want to grow an apple tree, right, you have an apple branch, but you have this other tree uh, growing that's gonna, not going to bear any fruit. If you've got this branch, you can graft that branch into uh, this tree, and the tree now will naturally supply that branch, and that branch will bear fruit. That's usually how it works. You take a, a tree that doesn't bear fruit, and all of a sudden you put a right branch in, it bears fruit, but not in this illustration. In this illustration, it's the exact opposite. Now, why in the world would anyone want to do that, right? Like, why are you like, I got this great fruit tree. I know what I want to do. Let's cut off all the regular branches, and then we'll just graft in a wild, a wild branch that doesn't do anything, that's not going to produce any fruit at all. That's, that's what it's saying in this passage. is like there was Israel who was this, this tree that would bear fruit, and now God grabbed this wild branch and just popped it in there. And that's who we are, right? Like, like it's this, this later, this thing that came, came in later, and God, allowed it to be a part of, part of God's plan. And so that's what in the New Testament, when you read about the way God worked with Israel, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, it refers to the, to the New Testament church, the Gentiles. It refers to us as, as a mystery that was revealed in the New Testament, this unexpected surprise that God was working through his Jewish, the Jewish people, and all of a sudden this wild branch got grafted in. And you think to yourself, well, why would God do that? And the, the only answer is not because of you, but because of his grace. It's surely by the grace of God. So this is what brings us to a place of humility. And it's, that is important in your relationship with God. In fact, he's going to build on this as he moves forward. And, but he encourages us then in verse 18, he says this, do not be arrogant toward the branches. When you think about Israel who's been broken off, and then you think about yourself now in the position that you're in, don't look at the branches that have been broken off and tell the branches how much greater you are than them. Because you're a wild branch. This is not to give you a, a position over people. In fact, one of the interesting things when you read through the Old Testament and into the New Testament that you find with any people group, 
I, I don't know what it is about us. I do know what it is about us as human beings. This is our sinful nature. But, but in a facetious sense, I don't know what it is about us that, that, that causes us to do this as people, right? Like, we look at other people who have fallen before us and then puff ourselves off as if we deserve the position that somehow we're greater than what they, they, they were. They fell, and we're not going to do that. We're better than them. Um, when, when you read the Old Testament, you even see this in the life of Israel, that this, this group of people that were slaves, they were oppressed, right? Um, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, one of the things God says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, he looks at Israel after they've been rescued out of slavery, and he, and he says to them, look, I want you to remember the, the widow and the orphan, and the immigrant. Because those flights in life, they're, they're, they're not easy. And, and when you don't have much in life, you need the help of others. And, and it's God saying to Israel, Israel, remember where you were before me. You were a group of slaves. You're a group of slaves. And when you honor what's broken, not only are you helping people in, your knee, in the need, but you're honoring God who made them in his image. And so consider the way that you treat people. Because you should know above all else, you were oppressed. You've been there. You know what it's like for someone to come in and meet your need because God has come in and met your need. And so demonstrate that grace of God in the way that you care for other people. And in fact, whether or not you truly understand what your relationship with God, uh, what God has done for your life is, is seen in how you care for other people even when they're difficult, just like the Apostle Paul and loving the Jewish people who, who rejected him and threw him in prison and beat him. And he, he didn't give up. And it was a demonstration of his understanding of who he was, because not because of himself, but because of the Lord. But here's what you see as you read throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. The oppressed over and over become the oppressors. Somewhere along the way, they forget about the grace of God. And they start to arrogantly believe that it's because of them they are where they are. And it's because they're great. And, well, God just can't refuse them because they're so lovable. And then they start looking down at other people. And so the, the, the Apostle Paul is warning us here because he's seen the, the pattern repeated over and over in the lives of people. In fact, when you get to the, the latter part of, of, of the Old Testament in, into the, uh, the prophets, the, uh, the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament, the last 17 books, the prophets really didn't start speaking until the, uh, the end of Israel's demise as, as they were carried into captivity. But the thing that God said to them over and over is that they, they started to oppress people. The widows, the orphans, the foreigners, they started to treat people poorly. The oppressed became the oppressor. And when you get to the New Testament, like in, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, he's, he's walking along with them, and, and James and John look at Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, when you get to your throne, um, let us reign on your right and on your left. And, and Jesus asks, can you really bear what we're about to, to go through? And they're like, oh, yeah, Lord, we can definitely do that. And the disciples get mad that James and John asked that question, and, and, and Jesus says to them, it's not mine to give you, but he who wants to be great, great in my kingdom must become the least. I mean, the, the way Jesus' kingdom moves forward is not top-down, but rather bottom-up. That To understand who Christ is, 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 is to become a servant because Jesus was the servant of servants. It's not about us getting above anybody else. But to understand the only way that we are where we are is because of the grace of God. 
And so examining your heart and whether or not it's in that position is important because when we, we fall, we realize the only reason we ever got to where we were is because of the grace of God. And the only reason we can find ourselves restored, it's always been because of the grace of God and God's grace is always extended to us. And so if you are, he says, remember it, not, um, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Right, then, then you will say, he says, uh, as God is identifying for this, he says, I know human nature. You guys are going to give a rebuttal to that. We do that. The oppressed becomes the oppressor. And so here's the rebuttal, verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. It's like, the, the, the thought is this, like they were broken off because, well, something's wrong with them and you brought me in. Well, because, well, I'm better, right? Like that's, that's why I'm here. And then in verse, verse 20, then he, he gives us really the, the way to treat the unhealth of the soul, which is important. It's, it's, it's important to know God's position. It's important to have godly friends. And in verse 20, it's, it's important to consider the health of our soul. He says, that is true. God says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. God, God is saying in this passage, look, there's there's one thing that destroys your soul and, and, and one thing that's going to keep your soul healthy. The thing that's going to destroy your soul, it's pride. It, it, it's self-autonomy. Pride is giving ourselves the credit for something that God has accomplished. It's taking the glory that belongs to God alone and keeping it for ourselves. Pride, essentially, it's, it's self-worship. You think you're where you are all because of what you've done. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says this. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Do you not understand? It's the grace of God. It's always been about the grace of God. And so, and so in the, the last part of this verse, he encourages us. God's desire for us in, in being able to walk in a healthy life is this idea of fear. And this doesn't mean afraid, but rather it carries better the idea of this reverence. This reverence for the root that gives us life that we have the opportunity to rest in. Because when we have that reverence, we're, we're truly coming to the one that God has, we've been created to worship, the Lord alone. And we're surrendering to him because we found our identity there. Well, what he's saying is if, if you want to live the healthy Christian life moving forward after you've fallen, certainly God, God's desire is to invite you back in. But the way that this continues, it's humility. It's humility. In fact, I, I often say um, humility is the language of God. You want to connect to God. You want to know God. You want to walk with God. Humility is, is his language. It says to us over and over in the Bible, um, pride comes before the fall. But God, God hum, in, in our humility, he will uh, lift us up in him. And so then it goes on and says in, in the following verses, note then the kindness and the severity of God. He wants us to take it seriously. There's God's kindness and also there's God's judgment. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. He's saying this really to the Jews and the Gentiles. God will certainly judge our sin. God will judge. 
But God also always leaves the door open for us to turn to him, to be forgiven, to, to be reconciled. And, and he warns us if we don't do that, we're going to be cut off. Now, l- let me explain this word cut off for a minute because I think some, some people can approach this passage and, and apply it the wrong way. Um, Paul in this section is not referring to an individual. He's not saying, look, follow Jesus, and if you stop following Jesus, then God's going to completely cut you off and cast you out, right? Like, you're going to burn in hell forever. That's, that's not what this passage is saying, okay? Um, rather, what, he's, what he has in mind here is a people group. He has in mind the Jewish people group and the Gentile people group. A Gentile people group is everyone else in the world that's not Jewish, And he's describing us this way, that a a people group can reject God. Now, there can always be a remnant within that people group, right? We've looked at that in chapter 9 and 10. Among the Jews, there was always a remnant. The apostle Paul was a remnant. His faith was in Christ. He was not cut off, right? He he followed after the Lord. Uh, But when we think in terms of Jew and Gentile, he's talking about people groups. And he's warning both Jew and Gentile, if we don't align our heart with the Lord, if we don't come to Christ, if we don't surrender our life and ask the Lord for forgiveness, that that those people groups can be cut off. That if a a generation rises up and they reject the Lord, that, that, that it not only has consequences for that, generation, but the lineage that comes forth from that generation, that not only could that generation be lost, but so can the next generation, that it's it's a people group by and large that are cut off because they've rejected the Messiah. How important it is, your walk with Jesus, to understand the condition of your heart, to think about why you are where you are in him and how you follow after the Lord. And then he goes this way, verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. This is that, uh, reminds me of the great theologian Mariah Carey, uh, We Belong Together. Right? If you know that song, you'll listen to it later today, right? Um, but God is saying like uh, that, even if they continue in their unbelief, God, God in his power, um, he can graft in, he, he can bring what's broken, and he can always restore it at any moment. Beautiful thought in the Lord. You think about your own failures, you know, like, how could God love me? And God's just saying, because I'm, I'm full of grace and I'm for you, and I, I want to bring you into me because you were created for that, and I can graft you in. No matter how many times you feel like you fall, or you get back up and we can continue this race together. Verse 24, if you were cut off, uh, cut from what is by nature a, a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a, cult of all, a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive olive tree. And God's saying, if, if the Lord can do this with you Gentiles, you wall, uh, wild olive branches, God can certainly bring his people back again, the, the chosen people, the Jewish people. God can bring them in, into relationship with him. Now, in terms of this passage of scripture, many Christians, um, we don't struggle to remember what I told you, right? We generally, I think, know if we've read, read through the Bible or read portions of the Bible what the nature of God is and the importance of godly relationship and, and examining my own heart. But, but reality is sometimes we get distracted and sometimes we lose our, our passion for the things of the Lord. Um, I, I think it's important even when you walk with Jesus uh, to always rub shoulders with new believers. Uh, sometimes they remind you just what God has, has done in your life. You, you get around a new believer sometimes and when their life is radically transformed and they, for the first time, their eyes open to the love of Jesus and knowing him and forgiveness and they start talking about it, there's this excitement about them and you think, man, I used to talk like that, right? Like, 
I forgot, I forgot some of this stuff, but their, their passion is contagious, and I love what God is doing in life, and, and we can get like that sometimes. We get to the place where just following after the Lord just feels like a, a humdrum task, and it's just the same old hat that we've worn over and over, and we forget just how good God's been to our lives. And so can I just encourage you as, as we leave today with just a, a couple of thoughts couple of things to practice in your life that just churn the, the, the beauty of a, a godly heart in your life as, as you think about surrendering to, to him in, in, in humility rather than walking in pride. The first is this. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Actually, later today, if you want to read this passage starting in verse 4 to the, to the end of the chapter, it's a beautiful section of Scripture. It deals with uh, anxiety. It talks about whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. Think on those things. Um, but, but Paul says this in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again. Rejoice. And one of the most incredible things for me about this chapter is when I, when I consider where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote this. Paul is in, he's in jail. He's been beaten and he's thrown in jail. And you know what Paul's talking about? Rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord. And rejoicing carries this idea. You know, Paul, if you ask Paul, Paul, do you, do you like being in prison? Isn't this awesome? Paul's going to be like, no. I, I, you know, I don't, if I had to choose between prison and not prison, I'd choose not prison every time. Um, but what Paul is saying is this idea of rejoicing is a rejoying and the things of God that remind you of his good hand in your life. What makes the Lord so good? Sometimes as people, we tend to just focus on the negative. Our, our culture does that, right? I mean, turn on the news, they just, they, they, they live on the fear, all the problems in life. But what Paul is saying is, it is important to the health of your soul to constantly be rejoying in the things that you have in the Lord. And the way that you do that is you look back over the good hand of God in your life. And you remind yourself every day of that God. Because it's the same God who walks with you now. You rejoy in that. And at the same time, while you rejoy, the Bible says over and over that his people are to sing a new song. And the Psalms mention this multiple times. Sing a new song in the Lord. Uh, Psalm 96 verse 1, sing a new song in the Lord. And this idea of a new song is to recognize that in our life, and God keeps working. That God's story as we walk with him continues to paint beautiful things in our life. That our soul, as we continue in that journey, get to rejoice in him. It's not to come to Jesus once and your relationship with God is done. But rather, uh, continue close to the Lord and give him the opportunity as you walk close with him to continue to write that new song of great things that he's doing in your life. That you can sing and the great things of God as he moves forward. It's important for the soul to be refreshed. Not to just live in your past and your relationship with God, but to enjoy the, the, the joy of that relationship every day as you walk with him. So not only does God give you reason to rejoice as you look at the things of the past, but he gives you reason to sing because you're looking at the great things in the future that God has for you. Because wherever you go in the Lord, you know his hand is going to provide whatever you need. And so you can sing before the Lord. Let me close with this. George Schmidt. <laughs> Uh, George Schmidt was actually considered the first Protestant missionary to ever go to Africa. He went to, to South Africa. He beat uh, David Livingston by a, a number of years. I think almost 100 years he was ahead of David Livingston in, in, in Africa. 
Uh, but George Smith went to South Africa and uh, ministered to a, a people group down there that there was a Dutch colony that already existed there, but they were treated poorly by the Dutch colony. But George Smith went ahead and ministered to them anyway. He didn't care how, how the people were treating them. He, he, he desired for them to, to know the Lord. And uh, as he ministered there, he was there for about seven years. And he saw his first few converts come to know the Lord and were baptized. I think it was five total people came to know the Lord and were baptized. And it angered the Dutch people. And, and they actually kicked out George Smith. And, and he left after seven years of doing ministry there. He left feeling defeated. He thought after seven years, all, all he saw uh, were five converts, five people who come to know the Lord and were baptized in him. And, and he just thought, he just felt broken. Here he is. Uh, he, he tried his best for the Lord and, and it just didn't work the way that he wanted. And he ha had to be sent home and just felt defeated. It was over 50 years before anyone went back to Africa. Um, 1944, I believe it was when he was kicked out, or 1744 it was when he was kicked out, and 50 years later, people returned, and when they finally returned, the first thing that they did is they went to the place that George Smith had done ministry, and they found the ruins of his home, and while they were there, someone came up to them and greeted themselves, and they were asking about the work that he had done, and they took him they took this, this, this group of missionaries to a home of a, of a lady who is now uh, much older, but she was one of the people that George Smith had baptized. And they asked her, do you, do you read the Bible? Do you know the Bible? And she took them over to the corner of, her, of the place where she lived, and she uncovered in this goat skin a, a copy of a Dutch New Testament. And she had been reading it uh, to her family every day since George Smith had been kicked out. A hundred years to the day after he was removed from Africa, feeling like a failure. They did a study on how many people came to know the Lord off of George Smith's ministry of just seeing five people converted. One hundred years later, over 13,000 people had come to know Christ through that ministry. Because sometimes when we serve Jesus, it feels hard. And sometimes we don't get the results that we expect or want. But can I encourage you this morning? God's desire for your life is not about results. God's desire for your life is simply that your heart would be connected to him faithfully. It's when your heart is connected to him faithfully that he produces the fruit. Fruit's not up to you. But God won't work in your life unless your life is truly surrendered to him. But it's when we have that opportunity to give our lives to the Lord that he can do great things beyond our imagination. George Smith never lived to see those results. But the ripple effect was huge. If the people were willing to recognize one thing, he's the root, not me. I'm just the wild olive branch grafted in. But it's him that produces the beauty if my heart would surrender in humility. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.